Welcome to Invisibly Unwell, the podcast shedding light on the invisible issues that many high-achieving women struggle with in the shadows. I'm your host, Paige Lavelle. I'm an MBA-educated professional woman with 16 years of experience working for multiple Fortune 100 and 500 companies. I worked very hard to get to where I am professionally and academically, but there's a side of me that very few of my colleagues, mentors, or business acquaintances are even aware of. I am also an autoimmune warrior, eating disorder survivor, author, and now podcast host. This podcast is for women out there struggling with perfectionism, people-pleasing, disordered eating, and autoimmunity, to name a few. Issues that are completely invisible to the world around us, therefore presenting their own challenges. My hope is that someone listening to myself or to the many guests I will have sharing their knowledge and experience realizes that they are not alone. Quick disclaimer, this podcast is meant for general information only and should not be taken as a substitute for medical advice, diagnoses, or treatment. Today's guest is Dana Monzies. She's a licensed dietitian, nutritionist, and body image coach who believes true health and healing go so much deeper than food and exercise. Dana works with women dealing with gut issues, adrenal fatigue, and burnout who want to heal from the root cause, using an approach that combines the principles of functional medicine, integrative health, and non-diet neutral nutrition. I've been following Dana for five years now, and I was a guest on her podcast many years ago. She's now rebranded her podcast with a guest host, and it's called Wholehearted Eating. I cannot recommend listening to her enough, especially if you've struggled with chronic illness and struggled with some type of disordered eating. I'm so happy to welcome Dana today, and I know you're going to get some incredible takeaways from this episode. Welcome, Dana, to the podcast. I'm so happy that you took the time to share your story and be interviewed here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I mean, I had you on my show, what, we were just talking about five years ago or something, so it's like a full circle moment. (laughs) Yeah, it really is. Um, Yeah, I was on your show years ago talking about perfectionism specifically um, and how that played into my health issues and my health journey. I feel like that's the the catchphrase that's most common these days, Um, but I really appreciate you coming. So obviously gave a little bit of your background um, in the the introductory bio, but I would love to hear um, if you could just give listeners an update on who you are, where you began, and what brought you to um, the offerings you have today in the nutritional space and in your own podcasting. Yeah. um, Do you have five hours? No. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Okay. So let's see, where should we start? So in my previous life, I worked in politics. (laughs) Um, I quit that when I was very sick, later learned I had celiac disease. I think a lot of other things were going on at that time as well, but that was the main kind of eventual diagnosis that we found because that took a very long time to get. Um, But I was also dealing with an undiagnosed eating disorder for many years, um, both when I was in college and then after college as well. And it wasn't until I kind of had this, you know, come to Jesus or come to the universe moment that was like, oh my God, I can't do this anymore. And I realized it was continuing to make me sicker. And I was starting to have a lot more like gut issues, nausea, thyroid issues, candida, like a whole bunch of other things in addition to celiac, right? So I was like, oh my God, I can't do this anymore. So I kind of dug myself out of that hole um, when I was still working in politics and then I got so sick, I had to quit my job and move back home with my parents, which is always so fun when you're in your 20s and already out of college. I've been there, done that. Yeah. I feel like a lot of us can relate with chronic illness. We've had to do that at some point. Yeah. And so 
And when I got a health coaching certificate at the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, and I was like, wow, this is really cool. But like legally, I can't practice this in Maryland and do the things that I want to do. So I went back to grad school to get my master's in clinical nutrition, and it all kind of spiraled from there. Um, But as Paige and I have talked about frequently, even in these, you know, integrative nutrition programs or dietetics or functional programs or whatever it is, everything is very elimination minded. Um, So you will rarely, unless you have a specific professor that's like, here's how you treat people with eating disorders, or like, here's how to not give the people that are coming to you eating disorders, even if they don't have them. Because when you have a chronic illness, the natural reaction is, oh, well, there must be something that I'm doing or I'm intaking that is creating more pain than already was. And so the natural reaction is to remove things. And that's where you're continually taught in nutrition school, no matter what program you're in, unless it's a specific eating disorder program. So I started to realize as I was working with people on, you know, complex issues like gut stuff, hypothyroidism, burnout, everything like that, that, you know, every time they were coming to me with these elimination protocols, or I used to work with elimination protocols, people would come out on the other side and like, yeah, maybe their symptoms were a little bit better temporarily, but a lot of disordered eating stuff was coming up. So about five years ago at this point. Yeah, I think in 2018, I really started to buckle down on the like, okay, we're not doing elimination stuff anymore. We're going as much as possible from an add-in approach. I started working more and more with people with a history of eating disorders and then also people that have this complex complex intersection of chronic illness or chronic symptoms and then also disordered eating. And sometimes it's like, well, which came first, the chronic illness or the disordered eating? And they have this huge interplay with each other, especially with gut and hormone issues. Um, And that's kind of where I've been sitting for the past couple of years. I've gotten increasingly more uh, like research focused and labs focused in the past couple of years, which I find is a great way to help bring neutrality to the conversation because the labs don't lie, right? There's no, oh, I'm blaming myself for my, you know, like whatever is coming up on the labs. I mean, that is very common to do of like, oh, it feels like it's my own fault when you're in functional medicine because, or when you're, you know, working with a functional medicine practitioner, because when they do work from this uh, restrictive or elimination-based approach, a lot of clients will come to me and be like, well, I have this little voice in the back of my head that is an old practitioner that I used to work with that makes me feel like, oh, well, if I only had paleoed harder, then I wouldn't have Crohn's or I wouldn't have Hashimoto's or I wouldn't have anything like that. And instead, on the flip side now, it's like, oh, well, you know, these numbers are looking kind of wonky. Instead of being like, oh, let's, you know, let's dwell in the past and how we got here in terms of, you know, however that was, because if you have a chronic health condition, it's not your fault. It's we want to look at, okay, how did we get here in terms of the different lifestyle factors? Are there any things that we can manipulate in terms of adding in nutrients? What might be missing or anything like that? And then trying to look at, well, what are we going to do going forward from a non-perfectionist plan? Because Any type of plan that's going to build in perfectionism is really just setting you up to fail, whether that's we're dealing with autoimmune disease, we're dealing with chronic illness, whether we're dealing with building a business. Yeah, thank you. That's super insightful. Uh, So to dive a little bit deeper into the conundrum that you're left in as a patient when you have a history of disordered eating, um, I use disordered eating because I myself had a full-blown diagnosable eating disorder, but there's so much gray in that space. I was bulimic. It started my freshman year of college. It's something that I used to feel like was a scarlet D that I had to wear on my chest. 
um, or ED, if you will. I don't know why. Yeah. <laughs> Not a scarlet A, if you will, um, but a scarlet ED or just, just like a mark of shame that I had to wear around because I never talked about it. I mean, to this day, well-intended. My parents are of the generation where you, you don't talk about that. Like that makes people uncomfortable. Mine too. We never and talked about it. They, Yeah, we never talked about it. They don't ask about it. They just ask like, are you okay? And that's their olive branch. And I get it because they're not of the therapized. We talk about our feelings. They're just like, oh, that's icky. Let's make a joke and redirect the energy. So at 18, it's not shocking when I look back now that it happened. I was the kid in high school. And I part of the reason I started this podcast was to give um, a message out there that resonates with people that are high achieving type A, success-driven women, especially since we are the large majority of autoimmune patients and and people who struggle with eating disorders. There are men out there too, um, but we are definitely the majority. I I think that's pretty clear. So to give something and to put a message out there that resonates with those other women, I was a very good student. I was in student council. I was on the dance team. I was in National Honor Society. I was in beta club. I twisted myself into a pretzel and didn't have five seconds of free time in high school. So it doesn't shock me that when I was living my entire life trying to achieve these gold stars and everything was externally focused, I mean, if someone even said like, oh, that sucks or oh, that's disappointing, I was crushed. Like I was in an emotional spiral. So when I got to college and I had that first taste of freedom, I also went to college in New Orleans. So you want to talk about putting a kid in the candy store uh, when it comes to freedom. Um, I was... uh, binge. I I don't say binge lightly. I was drinking myself to death. I was missing some of my classes and I went from being this honor student to struggling. Um, I was trying to find a place to fit in. I don't come from money and there's nothing against my friends who have wealth. I mean, they were born into what they were born into and a lot of them were incredible people. Um, But I just felt very without and very less than because I was on scholarship and I had work study and I was trying to just do this endless dance of fitting in, not giving any space for who I actually was. Totally, honestly, to be frank, didn't know who I was. And so the eating disorder became my coping mechanism. And all I saw in the media up till that point, all I was taught in classrooms was they just want to be thin. And that's how it happens. I was already thin. I was like between a size two and four. I was an athlete. It wasn't about being thin. So I think we really need to work collectively, women, uh, with being more vulnerable and honest about their eating disorder experience, because when you then have chronic illness added to it, I had my first diagnosis before I had an eating disorder, and then I had further diagnoses after I became bulimic. So mine is kind of a back and forth there, uh, all related to each other, as you said. Um, So I feel like sharing people sharing more about their eating disorders and the fact that there is such a gray space is really helpful and the conundrum myself as a chronic illness patient got into and i feel that you can relate is that half of what i shouldn't say half the majority of what's recommended from a diet and lifestyle perspective goes against what you should be doing to recover from an eating disorder these super restrictive diets these patient blaming tactics of oh well you have i know you have celiac so it's different but for me it was like you had gluten today how dare you if I have Hashimoto's and I'm like, do you want to trigger a demon that I've worked really hard inside to control by not letting me have a bagel at my family's Easter brunch? So it's just very difficult uh, terrain to navigate. And I feel like there's not a lot of balanced advice out there. Um, so I'd love if you're willing to, to share your experience with that. And then if you're willing to share a little bit more just about your eating disorder journey, since it was very different. Oh, than mine. yeah. Yeah. I mean, so 
the let's go with the advice first, right? So if you are someone who's come from a history of restriction, whether it's a diagnosed eating disorder, undiagnosed eating disorder, disordered eating, or even doing 12 whole 30s, because that is disordered too, right? Even though they want to say that it's not, but it is. Because <laughs> if they didn't say that it was, then they wouldn't make money, right? And that goes for anything like paleo, keto, intermittent fasting, whole 30, you know, that's just like one of the most well-known ones. But it's it's really really tough cuz like you mentioned you know these these two things the advice given for let's say inpatient recovery for an eating disorder which has a lot of its own issues as well really the main goal there is weight restoration right or weight stabilization no matter if you have anorexia or bulimia or orthorexia or you know arfid or any of these other things but the problem with that is it's only addressing the physical. It's not addressing addressing the emotional. It's not addressing the psychological for the most part. There are many people that I've worked with that have been out of inpatient recovery and they're like, well, you know, I quote, restored my weight and then I just went back to what I was doing before. It's not the case for everybody, but I've seen that a lot. And then on the other side of things, when you have someone who has been diagnosed with a chronic health condition or they just have symptoms that they're trying to manage and they don't yet have a diagnosis, you're constantly looking and researching because for a lot of these people, and these are the types of people that end up with me, is they've had a lot of things going on for a long time, symptom-wise, and then they go to you know their primary care and they get all their blood work done. They're like, oh, you know, you're fine, basically. And then they're like, okay, well, I don't feel fine, so that's not helpful. So then maybe they'll go to functional medicine or they'll look for you know a nutritionist or they'll look for something like that. And then 99% of the time, they are given some sort of structured elimination protocol. No matter if you have had a history of an eating disorder, disordered eating, chronic dieting, anything like that, that kind of thing is going to lead to a very perfectionistic all or nothing mentality that leads you down the road of if I eat any of these foods in the no category, it's going to trigger all of my symptoms. Therefore, it is my fault. And this can also be extended not only to food, but to things like stress, because in functional medicine, a lot of the time they're like, oh, stress is the root of all evil and stress causes a lot of inflammation. It's like, hello, can I raise my hand and say, look at the amount of stress that you're putting on people by trying telling them they must eliminate all these foods and do hundreds of dollars worth of lab testing and supplements and everything in order to feel better, which is very privileged in the first place. And then second of all, you're basically placing the entire blame on them if they are, quote, non-compliant, which I have heard way too many times in the practitioner space. Um, and, you know, like I mentioned before, it's a real chicken or egg situation. For me, it was the eating disorder behaviors came first because of struggles with my weight and body image, which were started, I think, when I was probably like seven or eight years old or something. Um, I was also an athlete growing up and like looking back, I was actually a smaller kid, but it didn't feel that way compared to everyone else. Um, you know, I was chubby and my mom was trying to control my weight and I, you know, had only models of people trying to control their weight and the women all throughout my family. And no one had ever had a diagnosed eating disorder in my family, but food and body image stuff wasn't something that we talked about overtly, even though I observed it happening a lot. I'm, all, I'm also the 
the oldest daughter and the oldest uh, cousin on that side of the family. So like I was the first one, the perfectionist. And actually, it's really interesting that you mentioned like trying to be perfect in school and everything. This book came out a long time ago, but there's a book called The Overachievers, which is basically what you were describing. It's written about my high school and a rival high school. (laughs) So it's the same kind of thing, right? You're putting all of this pressure on yourself. And then on top of that, you're trying to fit into a very specific mold based on the beauty standards at the time, which are unattainable except for people who just genetically happen to be that way or starve themselves into that size. Or if we look at beauty standards now, very specifically sculpt themselves into that size, right? So yeah, I always see that they're they're more body positive now, quote unquote, but it's not, it's still fat phobic. It's like, well, if you have a size 18 waist, then yeah, it's okay to have curves. Um, but we grew up with the, because we're around the same yeah. age, we grew up with the heroin chic phase and we grew up with, and I'm not knocking them, like I loved their music and was all about them when I was younger, but like Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera and they were owning it. And like, I'm not demonizing them, but like we were given these ideals that were just frankly, unless you're genetically inclined to appear that way are not going to work. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was very difficult to be an adolescent at that oh, time. Yeah. Or, I mean, and they also like celebrities have an, an entire team of, oh, here's exactly how you should eat and how you should exercise. And basically here's exactly how you should starve yourself into a certain size. Because when we look at, you know, Christina Aguilera and Britney Spears and all these other women now, it's easy to say that they most likely had undiagnosed eating disorders as well. Cause like there's no other way that you could fit into that, you know, aesthetic standard of beauty, unless again, genetically, like they looked like that then. And then they also look like it now. So going back to my own struggles and stuff, like in, in high school, I, I was just like a, I was just a kid. I was really just an amoeba. I was like, oh yeah, I play a lot of sports. Like I do, I was stressed about, you know, sports and school and friends and all the things, but my body wasn't really a, uh, thing to be controlled at that time because I didn't know how to do it. That changed in college and that is where the eating disorder really flourished. And I mentioned this, like I I was never diagnosed, but looking back on those behaviors, 100%, anybody could have, I, okay, I want to change the narrative of like, I don't think that you can know that someone has an eating disorder by looking at them, especially when uh, people who are in larger bodies who have anorexia are labeled as atypical anorexic just because they're not rail thin, right? So you couldn't tell by looking at me or you wouldn't even suspect by looking at me that maybe I had an eating disorder that was alternating between anorexia and bulimia and a lot of orthorexia and then exercise bulimia as well. It was just a whole lot of mess. But the thing is, so many girls and also, you know, everybody in college now struggles with this kind of stuff. But at that time, it was a lot of girls who were just normalizing those behaviors, not necessarily the purging or anything like that, but binge drinking, 100% normalized. Skipping a meal, 100% normalized. Even for athletes, I swam in college and that is a very body-centric sport. You're basically half naked all the time, you know, and when you just want to fit in and you want people to like you, it's very difficult. But it didn't stop in college. Um, it continued for, you know, the next couple of years. And then really when I started finding nutrition, I found it as a way to quote, fix myself. And that led to even more restriction at first, because then all of a sudden you're like, Oh my God, I have thyroid and candida and maybe I have celiac and maybe I have all these other things. 
So then when you look at the list of foods that I was, quote, allowing myself to eat, it was so incredibly small that no wonder I was continuing to shrink and also be sicker because even just using the thyroid as an example, if you don't eat enough carbohydrates, your body's not going to be able to produce and convert the hormones that you need for thyroid health. So your hair is going to be falling out. Your body's going to be cold all the time. And looking back, I'm like, yes, yes, check, check, like all of the things, you know? And it's really interesting because I didn't go through um, traditional like eating disorder recovery treatment. I didn't even have a therapist at that time because speaking of things that you don't talk about, there's no way I could have asked my parents to go for a, to a therapist, right? That didn't even start until my, you know, later 20s or something like that. So it's a really, really hard space to be in because a lot of the time when people are dealing with an eating disorder, whether diagnosed or disordered eating or not, you're using it as a coping skill, like you mentioned before, to try and control something. For a lot of people, that is their weight. For a lot of people, it's a past trauma that they're trying to feel some aspect of control over. For some people, it's their life currently doesn't feel like it has any control. So then you're either going to food or exercise or manipulating your body size for control or comfort or alternating with both of them, which then when you bring food as a healing tool and a therapeutic tool to the equation, which is the way that it is presented in the functional medicine space, that can get really, really tricky. And even if the practitioner that you're working with has the best of intentions, doesn't want you to you know, restrict it, no matter the way that they're presenting it, depending on how it's internalized, it can trigger those past eating disorder behaviors and make your current symptoms even worse. So, so, so true. <laughs> I appreciate you just being very real about it. Um, as someone who has gone deep down the path of all of those testings and all of those very severe elimination diets, um, I'm going to hop on a little bit of the train of all the trends that have come out, um, trying to point fingers to very specific things regarding chronic illness. Um, and I think it leaves very little room for the reality that all of our health situations are extremely unique and very complex. And to oversimplify them and point to one negative force, if you will, is problematic. Um, you're left on, at least myself, I was in this hamster wheel of one root cause to the next root cause to the next root cause, rather than thinking, oh, these might all be playing into my problems. It's not one specific magic bullet to fix the situation. Uh, I'm talking five figures later that I frankly didn't have uh, when I was doing all this testing, buying all these crazy supplements. I used to take like a fistful of supplements every day and was so stressed out, was working 24-7, was only worried about what people thought of me, never stayed in touch with myself or never paused to think of what I wanted in life or how I was happy. And I thought that all those supplements and green juice were just going to fix it, even though I, I completely disregarded any mental or emotional issues. So um, circling back to what I initially said around trends, um, one of the ones I personally found pretty difficult, now to be clear, I have friends who have done this and they don't have the chronic illness issues and they may not have the same mental and emotional struggles I've had, um, but you constantly see things like keto and intermittent fasting and like, oh my God, if you have an eating disorder or ever have, please, for the love of God, do not do intermittent fasting. It will bring up all the things that you may or may not have the tools to handle properly. Um, in my case, it led to a relapse and relapse is part of recovery. I'm not ashamed of it anymore. Um, but narrowing the time that I was able to eat when I was bulimic for a decade is not healthy. Um, there's also a lot of issues with intermittent fasting when you are dealing with hormonal issues like I do with Hashimoto's. So between those and between some of the trends with certain influencers out there, 
where they give you these diets that I've looked at the calorie count and I'm like, this is straight up anorexia. This is not sustainable and this is dangerous. Um, what do you feel like is a major, or basically, could you just speak to what you see as the problem with the, I'll use the hashtag wellness space because it's not really wellness yes. um, and all the trends that get cycled and pushed out there? Yeah, it's the unwellness space as uh, you know the name of your podcast. Yeah, it's just, oh my gosh. So uh, social media is a problem. I mean, it, it, it is, it can be wonderful for connecting people and a whole lot of things. But here's the thing about those influencers, right? Just like celebrities, one, they don't know anything about you. I don't care if you have the exact same autoimmune condition that they do. You're the same, you know, age that they are. You're in the same life stage that they are. Their genetic markers, their blood work, all of the things is completely different from yours. They probably don't have a full-time job and kids and blah, 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 and all of these other things that you may or may not, you know? And so the, uh, like, don't take nutrition advice from anybody on the internet, right? At least not personalized nutrition advice, because unless you're working one-on-one -on -one with a practitioner or someone who has looked at your health history, your family history, your blood work, your diet, your lifestyle, your exercise, your stress, there's no way that they can actually have a customized, actually personalized nutrition, because a lot of people are now going on, they're like, this is personalized nutrition, like bandwagon. It can't be personalized unless it's one-on-one. -on -one. That's just the reality of it. Now, that's not to say that like, you know, if, if there, there are plenty of people on social media that present a lot of research and they may say like, for example, with Hashimoto's, oh, it shows in the research that, you know, from 70, I'm making up a number, 70% of people with Hashimoto's that, you know, cutting out gluten is very helpful. Caveat, which they never talk about, because there's a, such a high correlation between Hashimoto's and celiac. Just because you have Hashimoto's doesn't mean you have celiac. It means you have a higher chance of having celiac. And so that train of thought leads to, oh, well, if you have celiac, obviously you should cut out gluten. But that doesn't mean that everyone with Hashimoto's has to cut out gluten, right? Because even with that recommendation, which is backed by research, the train that I take my clients through is like, okay, first, first rule of looking at foods and whether they're, you know, appropriate for you is is this evidence-based, right? Is this food rule or should or anything, is it evidence-based? That's the first thing. Because if you have Kim Kardashian out here being like, oh, celery juice is gonna you know, fix all your problems. Okay, send me the receipts, Kim. She's not going to, right? Then the second one is, is this applicable to you, right? So if you're looking at research that says like, I must cut out gluten for Hashimoto's and you have Hashimoto's, okay, that is applicable to you. But the third and most important step I think is, is this appropriate for you? If you currently have an eating disorder and you have Hashimoto's, I'm still not gonna tell you to cut out gluten because having a relapse is gonna be way worse for you than having a bagel at your family's Easter and maybe triggering some Hashimoto symptoms. Now, the caveat is if you do have celiac or if you're allergic to wheat and that's gonna end you up in the hospital, I'm obviously not gonna tell you to eat that, right? And this is why it's so individual. An influencer has no idea why or if you are having any type of food reactions and just because there's this you know program called like the paleo autoimmune protocol just because you have an autoimmune disease doesn't mean you need to do that because every single autoimmune disease is different and every autoimmune disease presents differently in every person <laughs> so don't take any kind of wellness or nutrition advice at or take it at face value right because that's really what it is when we look at things like intermittent fasting, keto, carnivore, vegan, you know, any of these things, 
If you know someone who has kind of stumbled their way into one of these protocols and it's, quote, worked really well for them, my first question is, what does working mean? Because for most people, oh, it worked for me means they lost weight. But that doesn't tell me anything about your quality of life, your clinical symptoms, anything like that, right? I'd like to just like take a step to focus and emphasize what you just said. Just because something makes you lose weight does not mean it's good for you. Uh, yeah, I, That is just such a general rule of thumb that I think people think the opposite and it's so frustrating. But back to what you were saying, I just wanted to emphasize that. Yeah. There. And I mean, the other thing too is, you know, because a lot of people correlate, oh, this worked for me with losing weight. If someone does lose a lot of weight on something like intermittent fasting or keto, because what really they are is just extreme caloric restriction, right? I mean, when we get down to the math of it, if you're eating, you know, X amount every day as you're normal, and then you're eating one eighth of that, yes, your body is going to lose weight at first. Is it healthy? No. Is it sustainable? No. Are you going to lose weight at first? Yeah, probably until your body's like, holy shit, we can't do this anymore. And then you're going to start gaining weight because it's like, uh, we're going to die if we, this is a famine and we need to, you know, in, in the world that we live in, in this, you know, first world country, for a lot of people, most of the people listening to this podcast, you're not actually living in a famine. But if your body thinks that you are, it's going to biologically operate that same way. And things like you mentioned before, like intermittent fasting and keto specifically are awful for most people, specifically most women or people who are born as women because of the way of the cortisol connection, which cortisol is your primary stress hormone. When you fast of any amount your body produces cortisol. Now we bring it back to the perfectionism, autoimmune, high achiever conversation. You already have too much cortisol flooding your body. Or if this cascade has been happening for a long time, meaning every time you have a, any kind of external or internal stressor, your body produces cortisol to try and save you from the tiger that's running after you, even if it's your boss just sending you an email. When you add an additional major stressor onto that of hey, we don't have enough food, aka your intermittent fasting. Cortisol is one of the main things that can lead to blood sugar dysregulation, hormone dysregulation, gut issues, a lot of inflammation when you have it in too much of an amount. The other thing that can happen is the longer that you're in that excessive cortisol cycle, your body's going to be like, wait a minute, we've been producing this for a long time and nothing, like we've been trying to send you a signal, you're not getting it. So uh, we're just going to, start to produce a little bit less of this because no matter how much we produce, it's not making the intended result for us. So why would we waste our very valuable resources on producing something that you're not even going to use? Then what can happen is your overall cortisol levels can start to go down to the point where producing cortisol is actually like a last ditch safety mechanism in order to help regulate your blood sugar. After a certain point, if you keep fasting, that's going to bottom out too. And that's where I start to see the people that come to me who are completely burned out. We used to call this adrenal fatigue. Now it's more burnout. But it's just a horrible cascade of things. And then people are like, well, I have you know adrenal fatigue or I'm really burned out and I just keep gaining weight and I can't lose it. Do you think I should do intermittent fasting or keto? And I'm like, absolutely not. Let me shout it from the rooftops. Because ultimately, it's when there's a stressor, what your nervous system is telling you is your body is in an unsafe space and we just want to get out of it, right? That is fight or flight. That's when cortisol is produced. We don't want to do that for funsies, you know, just oh, I'm not going to eat breakfast until noon. 
well, I don't really feel like putting my body in fight or flight this morning. It's already there. And then if you drink coffee on top of it, which is also an <laughs> a way... I have mine just off screen, so... <laughs> well, I <can> hey, <laughs> realness here, right? If you... Like coffee on an empty stomach, which is commonly recommended for intermittent fasting. And it the double whammy is like if you work out and you have coffee on an empty stomach and you don't eat anytime soon, your body's just like cortisol, 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 like which is all of the inflammation, right? Which is really not helping your body, even if you don't already have a baseline state of chronic symptoms, autoimmune disease, gut issues, hormonal issues. I don't ever recommend intermittent fasting for women, period even if they don't have any of those things. Because most women are stressed to hell, right? We don't need an additional stressor that we are voluntarily putting on ourselves, right? I, and, you know, this is where I run into people who are like, oh, but like, look at the research for this. I'm like, again, the third point, is this appropriate for you? And the answer is almost always no. There are very few exceptions to that rule, so. No, I... I could not agree more. Thank you for sharing. Obviously, I also have the holistic health certification, but you took it way farther. So I really appreciate you sharing your nutritional and hormonal knowledge there because I think it's something that is not being shared. Um, the cortisol is such a major issue that gets overlooked when it comes to these practices and things that are being pushed by influencers, biohackers, if I hear that term <laughs> one more time. Um, we're not, I, I'll, I'll leave that for, for another podcast, but I'm not trying to hack anything. I'm trying to sustain my mental and physical health as best as possible. And one thing I want to touch on is, so we're talking a lot about women, especially type A success-driven women. We can relate to that. Um, perfectionism and people-pleasing is a big part of my story. I'm in recovery from them both. I don't think they'll ever fully be gone, to be real. It's just something that I need to continue to work on and something that I have a lot more tools now, courtesy of therapy and just being more open and more vulnerable and talking to people like you who can relate to the same issues that I've struggled with since childhood. Um, one of the things I want to share is there's a lot of when, when people start realizing there's connections between your mental and emotional health and your physical health. When you are a perfectionist, you just start blaming yourself for being a perfectionist. I know that sounds so ridiculous, but my initial thought in my head, because I have this massive inner critic whose voice sounds a little familiar, it's a combination of a few different people, um, just telling me like, oh, really? Like, it's because it's your own fault. Like, you're just a perfectionist and you need to get over it. I realize how insane that sounds, but that is the voice that a lot of us hear. And why can't you just be perfect? Why can't you just be better? Why can't you just fix this? And it's such a black and white way of thinking. And I saw the world through such a black and white lens for decades. I mean, well into my 30s. So anyone out there who's listening that this resonates with, do not blame yourself. Do not buy into the script out there that it's fully about your mental and emotional issues. Do they impact your health? A hundred percent. Yes, they impact your hormones. They impact how you function. They impact your sleep. They impact everything. But to sit there and be like, well, it's my fault. And if I just learned how to meditate right, and if I just slept better, then all my health issues will go away. I have been told, not in those exact words, but I've been told that by practitioners of certain meditative practices, yoga practices. And to be clear, love meditation, love yoga. It's not going to make my Hashimoto's yeah. go away. It's just not. And I also have limited scleroderma. I have a complex set of issues and there are physical factors contributing to that. So while focusing on your mental and emotional health is super important, I mean, that's one of the themes around this podcast, you still have a physical issue. So to blame yourself for having these issues that were deep rooted and started in childhood and 
it's, you know, it could be your interactions with your family combined with society, combined with just this construct of as women, like you're supposed to be polite. You're supposed to be pleasant. I, in my late twenties had a review when I was worked in banking that came back from several VPs saying she's so pleasant to work with. And I was furious. And my boss was like, why are you upset? I was like, do any of the males that I work with have pleasant in their review? And she just was like, oh, I mean, they're saying it as a compliment. And I'm like, I feel like that's kind of calling me a doormat. And I don't, I don't know how I feel about Uh, that. So I didn't, I didn't pursue it in that way. I wasn't emboldened at that point in my career, but there is such a standard that's out there for women. And so these mental and emotional struggles we have with perfectionism and people pleasing, A, they're not your fault. Yes, you need to take accountability when you become self-aware of them and do what you can to help to function better and be kinder to yourself and have self-compassion. But it's not your fault any more than not following a gluten-free diet. It's not your fault any more than not being, like you said, compliant as a patient, which means be a good little soldier and do everything that you're told um, is not your fault either. So you have to have accountability. You have to be an active participant in your health journey. But as a type A female who's so, so, so hard on themselves, um, I just want to like extend like a hug <laughs> virtually that you need to give yourself a little bit of a little bit of a break and start doing this in bite-sized chunks, which as a high achiever is hard, I know, but it's the only way that you can really sustain any changes. Right. Well, so, you know, kind of bringing this all for full circle is one of the reasons that I love to talk about the science and cortisol and everything like that is because it's it's a neutral party. It's involuntary, right? So when we look at, you know, you can't separate your mental emotional health from your physical health, the connector is the nervous system there, right? So there's the gut brain connection, which is the literally tying your mental emotional health to your physical health, right? There's so many other branches of the nervous system that are connecting all of this. So we cannot separate our mental, emotional, and physical symptoms, which is another kind of deficit of our healthcare system is they are separated, right? And that's why in my practice, I take a more, you know, quote, integrative approach to things. It's you have to look at the whole picture. We can't look at your relationship with food and your negative body image as separate entities from your thyroid and your gut issues, because if those are creating coping tools in food restriction that is directly impacting your symptoms, as well as the stress that is mostly felt up here or maybe originates up here because of some external event is directly going to travel down your nervous system to your extremities, to your gut and all the things. And that alone can contribute to a lot of symptoms. Now, the permission slip here is that's involuntary. You can't do anything about that. And the solution is not, oh, well, I'll just remove all the stressors and I'll just meditate and I'll just do yoga and then I won't have this, you know, uh, autonomic nervous system that is connecting like, oh, every time I have a stressor, I have butterflies in my gut or I'm going to, I have to run to the bathroom and then that's going to impact my thyroid hormone conversion and then maybe I won't have Hashimoto's anymore. That's not the way that this works because even in more recent stress research, what they're showing is, well, one, it's not realistic to remove the stressors. Okay. Like anyone who says that, just walk out of their door. There's, they don't know what they're talking about. What is more effective is, one, acknowledging we, we can't get rid of all these stressors, right? There are certain things you can't rid of, get rid of. We live in the world in a patriarchal society. There's racism everywhere. We live like it. There's there's shit. Shit's hitting the fan every single day. Right. I just try to not watch the news for the most part. Right. But 
you can't just expect to remove everything and be okay because the external stressors, even if they are removed, doesn't change the internal hormonal and physiological process that has happened inside as a result of the stressors. So that's basically saying like, you know, the the old way of thinking is, oh, but you're not experiencing the trauma anymore. You should be fine. What? <laughs> like, that's not the way that that works. I wish that's exactly, how it Exactly, <laughs> right? To be like, okay, let me just, you know, I'll take my, I'll wait until this situation is over or take myself out of this situation and then I'll be fine. You know, uh, that's not the way that it works. As anyone who has ever been to therapy or experienced any kind of, you know, what we would call like big T or little T's trauma or ACE, a high ACE score, which is adverse childhood experiences, which is a huge determinant of autoimmune disease and gut issues later in life. Um, we can't just get rid of those. The thing that you can concentrate on is what are the different ways that are unique to me that can help me process all of the various stressors that I have that can help me basically flush all of this out of my system as best as possible. That doesn't mean we're removing foods. That doesn't mean you have to do meditation every day. That doesn't mean you have to do yoga, right? This is about finding the things that are different than distraction, which mostly is just like watching TV, retail therapy, restricting your food, going to food for comfort, right? Like none of those things are bad. And we can acknowledge they're not actually processing the stress out. They're just kind of like putting it off, which in some situations is the way that we need to go because we don't have the time, energy, or resources to do the processing. And that is fine. And when I mention processing, I don't even just mean going to therapy because sometimes that's uh, one, financially inaccessible, and two, emotionally too much, right? So like sometimes you don't have a therapist, sometimes it's too much money, and sometimes you're just like, I can't even deal with this right now. So figuring out different ways to process through and process out the stress, even if that's five seconds a day is better than nothing. And to, you know, bring this all back as well is we talked about before how there's this uh, phenomenon of practitioners saying like, oh, you know, non-compliance is the reason why your symptoms haven't gone away. Also them talking about, oh, well, if you just, you know, we're trying to remove as many, you know, inflammatory and stressful things as possible. How, what, like you're telling me that I'm non-compliant, which is adding a stress on, and you're also trying to tell me to eliminate all these foods, take on this huge financial burden, take all of these supplements. All of these things are stressors that you're adding to my plate, and then you're making it feel like it's my, you're making me feel like it's my fault for not doing all of these things when you're giving me an unachievable perfectionistic standard, which is why a lot of people leave functional medicine with more aggressive symptoms. Because the stress is creating um, a lot of issues. <laughs> I am definitely one of those people. I left uh, functional medicine. And to be clear, I still practice some things I learned in functional medicine. And I definitely got things out of it. So I'm not demonizing functional yep. medicine. But I left with five figures of debt from it. And just feeling like a failure. Because I couldn't comply with a lot of the things they were asking me to do. And I feel like one of the biggest needs out there, and I've discussed this with other guests on the podcast, is you're, as a patient, left to project manage between your standard Western practitioner, in my case, an endocrinologist and a rheumatologist, because autoimmunity, fun fact, has no specialty. Yep. So you have to go to the specific body system that is affected. So at one point, I was going to three different specialists on top of my primary care physician. So I was project managing my health in that capacity, and also having to balance it against the functional physician who demonized the Western approach. And so you're basically 
balancing between two adversaries and no one that's willing to work together. So you're left, the patient is the one that suffers ultimately. So you're, you're put in this position of managing all of that and then getting hit with all of these hashtag wellness trends that you also can't sustain. And then you wonder why you're stressed out and you can't sleep and you're anxious all the time. So one thing I want to share, so obviously we, we've, we've, we've shared a lot of gripes and concerns and things that have happened and you already started touching on this, but what do you feel like from your perspective and your experience, especially nutritionally, um, and just with stress management overall and the experience you've had with clients, what are some things people can do and that are more accessible, simple things that really will help them? Because I feel like, and, and I, everything we're sharing is super valid and I wish I had heard it 15 oh my God, years ago. <laughs> um, I, I just, oh my God, the amount of money and time and stress I would have saved, but you don't know what you don't know. And I'm hoping this helps others. So I think it all happened for a reason. But that said, all you hear out there a lot is how awful everything is and how terrible it is. And, and it is, and there's problems out there, but what are some things people can do? Like, I also want to extend options out there of what is feasible in a table. Yeah, definitely. Um, so if you're going, I'll start with the like <laughs> most expensive route and then I'll go to least expensive, right? If you are looking to work with any kind of practitioner, this is not a plug for me. Let me be clear. If you're looking to work with a practitioner, you want to find somebody who does like a free 15 minute intro call. Learn more about that person. Follow them for a while. Find out what they're about. You want to meet some or you want to find somebody who's going to meet you where you are, actually listen to you. And the way that I describe it to my clients is like someone who can look at all of your puzzle pieces, take that burden on from you and then help you put them together in a way that's going to be realistic for you, both like pragmatically, financially and mentally, emotionally, right? Because a lot of the time when people are coming to me, most of the time they're saying either they're falling in two camps or like the Venn diagram of the middle is I have a lot of clinical symptoms and I don't know what to do, or I have a history of an eating disorder. I have a lot of body image stuff and I don't want to do. And there's a lot of people that are in the middle of both. And like we had mentioned before, the recommendations for both of those tend to be separate. Like in a nutshell, on the relationship with food and body image side of things, the whole anti-diet space will be like, oh, just eat whatever you want and accept your body. It doesn't matter. And then on the uh, the trying to fix your chronic symptoms side, it's like, oh, just eliminate all these foods and you'll be fine and like fix all of your stress. And then you, when you're in the middle, you're like, what? <laughs> so finding someone who is the middle of that Venn diagram, which I know is hard to find, um, but there are some of us out there. So Looking for someone like that can be really helpful. Also digging into, you know, what what are the biggest things that are impacting my quality of life? So when you're in a state of, okay, I want to triage, right? Like I want to figure out what's going on. This is the first thing I do with people. I do a very long, like 90 minute intake. And then I ask them, what is the biggest thing that's impacting your quality of life? And you, we can do top three, right? Because even if someone has, Hashimoto's, they have all these other clinical symptoms and everything like that. If to them, the biggest thing that is impacting their quality of life is they feel like they can't eat anything that's outside of their perfect list of foods, that's the first thing that we need to start with, right? Because you need to start with the thing that is most important to the patient. This is a wild concept, I know, right? When you go to people who are specialists, they are experts in their field. They know a lot, but you don't want a practitioner who's just going to be like, here's all of the things that I know and probably should be good for you because you also have this issue that I tend to work with. It's no, what is, you know, I'll look at their symptom questionnaire and everything and I'll see, okay, well, what are the categories that are yelling at you? 
right internally. Those that's definitely one of the my priorities because I can tell that's going to be a part of a root cause that's contributing to a lot of issues that you're seeing. But I want to know also from your perspective, what do you think is the most important? What is something that's impacting you every single day that makes your life really uncomfortable or that brought you to my virtual practice, right? In terms of action steps um, and things that you can do every day, one of my favorite resources to recommend to people is a book called Burnout by Amelia and Emily Nagoski. Um, and I'll, I can email that to you afterwards, but it's a phenomenal book for learning more about your stress cycle and they give many 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 processing tools than i could give in this you know hour-long interview um so that is a great resource if you're looking to work on body image stuff and you're into social justice stuff i would recommend the body liberation project by chrissy king um and the Amelia and Emily Nagoski don't have a podcast, but Chrissy King does have a podcast. So there's so many free resources out there where you can find a community because that was going to be my third recommendation is you want to try and find a community of people or practitioners or something like that of people who are willing to listen and can relate to you and share your story. Now that can be your family, that can be your friends. It doesn't have to be an online community, but I feel like a lot of us who have struggled with chronic illness and eating disorder stuff or disordered eating one because there's so much shame around talking around about that stuff in person it's a lot easier to find people online now you may be like well dana i thought you just said don't listen to people online (laughs) this is a little bit different right this is more of finding a support system this isn't about following someone who's going to give you a list of to-dos that make you feel like you're not doing enough and you are less than so i guess that will be my fourth recommendation is This is is the only kind of detox I recommend is a social media detox. And this doesn't mean that you have to delete your TikTok and delete your Instagram and delete your Facebook and delete all the things. But if you find that when you're scrolling through that you're following people and all of a sudden you're like, oh, that makes me feel a little icky. Like maybe I should cut out gluten or like maybe I shouldn't be eating green beans or like maybe I should be doing this like, you know, 5 a.m. intermittent fasting meditation sound bath blah, 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 you know, whatever it is, we unfollow that person. Or maybe you mute them if it's a friend, you know. There's many tools on social media that allow you to not engage with those types of people as much. But if you are someone who engages with social media a lot, a great goal would to be you open your feed and you're not going to get stressed out, (laughs) right? It's like, oh, my friends are traveling. Look at all these dogs. If you're a baby person, oh my God, look at all my friends who are having babies, you know, like, and that actually might stress you out. But, (laughs) you know, with the, you don't want to leave social media with a list of to do's unless it's like, oh my God, look at this really cool place that I would love to travel to, you know, because a lot of the time when people are interacting on social media, they're like, oh my God, but I saw this and like, I saw this and I saw this and I'll hear this in session all the time, you know, and I'll ask people like, what are the main voices that are telling you to do things? What are your main food rules? You know, what are your shoulds? And this can come from anywhere. So when we're trying to minimize the amount of shoulds that are coming in our life every day, social media is a great place to do it. Because while it is an amazing place to find very diverse information, it's also really easy to get caught in an echo chamber, especially on TikTok with the algorithm that they have, um, which is really unfortunate. Sometimes great if you just get on, you know, comedy videos and stuff like that. But if you don't, I mean, one of the main reasons that TikTok was taken to court in the first place was because people were ending up in pro-anorexia spaces and they weren't getting out, right? So if you find that you are 
in a space where you're seeing a lot of people that are like, you should do this, or you're in a space where you're following these influencers or other people or whoever it is, and you find yourself body checking or body comparison-ing, that's a word that I just made up, or anything like that, unfollow, mute, restrict, whatever it is. You don't need that in your life every day because that's one easy trigger and stressor that we can just eliminate with a unfollow button. Oh, yes, 100% endorse that. <laughs> no, I, uh, I find myself routinely, I'll have stuff pop up that hasn't hit via the algorithm in a while. And I'm like, ooh, yep. no, this is no longer <laughs> unfollow, see less um, of this. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, uh, thank you so much. I cannot believe that we're already at the end of the hour. That Flew went by, by. <laughs> so quickly. Flew by, which is a good thing. Um, so I really appreciate you coming, being vulnerable, honest, sharing your experience and your insights. And I just want to give you the opportunity if anyone's listening and they want to hear more from you or work with you directly, where can they find yeah, you? Yeah. So three main places to find me, um, or I guess two, um, really the only places that I hang out are my podcast and my Instagram Everything is linked there. So my Instagram is Dana Monsies underscore CNS. Um, and my podcast is Wholehearted Eating Podcast, which is also on Instagram. So if you go to either of those, then you'll be able to find me. Um, you'll also find links to work with me or that free discovery call that I mentioned. If you are someone who's looking to work with someone who's not going to be insanely expensive, is not going to order thousands of dollars of lab testing and may actually be able to help you. Um, but, you know. For those new in their journey, that is not an easy thing no, to find. No, not so at all. I will give you yeah. a plug there. But also, like I recommended before, follow me, listen to the podcast, right? See if you like what I do before you're like, oh, let me sign up with Dana, you know. And the, I mean, the podcast has been going on since winter 2017. So we got a lot of episodes on there. You'll you can dig in the archives and find one page was on last time. Um, but we do a lot of episodes around relationship with food and body image and the interplay between that and chronic illness and chronic symptom management. Um, my co-host Christina has been doing a lot more episodes around like parenting and kids nutrition and how to raise kids without giving them a bad body image and working on your own stuff. I don't have kids, so I stay more on the clinical side of things, but we now have a balance of that as well. Awesome. That sounds wonderful. Well, thank you again. Uh, it's been so great to connect with you after several years, and I look forward to working together again in the future. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on and congrats on your new podcast. <laughs> thank you. I'm excited. <laughs> I really hope you enjoyed this episode of Invisibly Unwell. If you like the show, I'd greatly appreciate if you followed it. And if you left a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever it is that you're listening, this allows me to keep the show going and to continue to bring on incredible guests to share their stories.